Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lift As We Climb podcast with me, Kaylin Grace Apple. Chloe's not here with me today, but I have a really special guest for you. This is an episode with Gabby Whiten. Gabby Whiten is a PhD candidate at NYU studying molecular pharmacology. Gabby is also the founder of Gabby in the City, a New York City life and style blog. She creates digital content for her blog, YouTube, and Instagram, combining her passions for research, writing, photography, digital artwork, etc. In today's episode, we discussed her journey as well as comparing our PhD programs, talking about her digital platforms. Her story is truly inspiring, and as a Black woman in STEM, she is paving the way for other like-minded scholars to pursue their intellectual and creative passions. I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and if you do, please remember to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave us a little review. All right, let's get into today's episode. Hello, Gabby, and welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited for you to be here today. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited too, to chat. <laughs> yes, um, so we're going to begin with past, present, and purpose. This is just kind of to preface things and to talk a little bit about who's inspired you throughout your life. And so the first question is, who is someone from the past in particular who has inspired you or played a role in your personal or your professional life? Um, well, I mean, so I guess in my professional life specifically, um, so I'm doing like a biomedical PhD, and so I've always kind of been into the science world, and I think a big reason for that is in the fifth grade, I remember, um, we had to do like a project where we picked, um, just someone that was really impressive and someone that we really like aspired to be and so I chose Mae Jameson and she was the first like African-American or black um uh astronaut which I thought was like so cool I was like oh like you know space stars the planet and and you know a lot of science so I feel like that's someone that's kind of inspired me she had like an MD and a PhD and I was like this like that's super cool like I could definitely see myself doing that so I think for me, that was probably someone who really inspired me in, in I guess, a greater sense. Yeah. Excellent. And then who do you look up to today? Who do I look up to today? I mean, as like basic as it sounds, like Michelle Obama is my girl. Like, I just, I don't know. She's just so put together and well-spoken. And uh, yeah, that's just, I read Becoming and I was just kind of like, Michelle, love you, but yeah. Have you listened to the podcast yet? I have not, but it's it's on my list of, of podcasts to listen to for sure. Um, yeah. Highly recommend. It's really good. I loved the episode with her and Barack. Yeah. So the next question is, what is your why? What do you hope to do with your research or your online platforms? What's your, your purpose, your driving force? Yeah, um, so I guess... My driving force is, um, I guess in the sense of, of doing my PhD and my research is I've always really been interested in, you know, how the human body, um, how its mechanisms are actually kind of manipulated and used, used against it and, and how we can use therapeutics and, and drugs to, uh, I guess, help treat them. Um, and so that's what a big part of my thesis project is, is just, you know, honing in on a specific neurodegenerative disease, trying to figure out the mechanism that it uses to kind of 
uh, drive the disease and, and how we can treat it. And so I think I've always just been really interested in how can we create new drugs? How can we improve on old drugs to help treat these diseases? And, and more specifically, even rare diseases, ones that don't really get a ton of attention from big pharmacy companies, um, because those patients obviously need treatment options as well, um, even if it's not, you know, something that's, I guess, economically uh, as attractive for the big pharma companies, because that can sometimes be their ultimate goal. Um, but yeah, so I guess that is kind of like my professional goals slash why I do what I do. Um, and then in terms of my online platform, I think, especially in the sciences, there's kind of this attitude where, you know, I must be doing science 24 seven. That is who I am. That is what I have been placed to do. And I, while I think it, it is a big part of my life and something that I do take very seriously and something that is, I think like my, you know, greatest purpose. Um, I also think that, you know, science is one of the most creative, you know, industries or disciplines and, you know, being a creative person, I, and growing up in kind of the internet age, uh, I think it was just kind of like, oh, I like video editing or I like, you know, photography or, you know, doing all those things. So I think kind of showing that you can have varied interests and, and pursue kind of a lot of different things at the same time is, is a big reason why I've continued to do kind of the online thing. Excellent. And then as we get into kind of the body of this podcast, can you give us a little bit of background? Tell us where you came from, where you grew up, where you went to school for undergrad? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I grew up in Chesapeake, Virginia. It's about, I don't know, 15 minutes from Virginia Beach. Most people are more familiar with that. Um, it's in Southeast Virginia. Grew up there for 18 years, lived with my parents. Um, and, you know, when I got to high school, I was kind of like, all right, it's time to buckle down, figure out what I want to do. Uh, where I want to go to school and both my parents are kind of in STEM my mom's a physical therapist and my dad is a nuclear engineer so it was kind of like you know all the dots were there for me to kind of be interested in science so I took a lot of science and math in high school originally I wanted to be a pharmacist uh, but then I kind of got scouted I don't even know if that's the right word scouted for a science scholarship a new one at UNC Chapel Hill so that's where I went to undergrad and the whole idea of the scholarship is to increase minority representation in the science fields and to help students pursue uh, graduate education whether that be a PhD an MD a PharmD uh, all the you know graduate uh, level study and so as I went through undergrad at UNC, I was kind of introduced to the world of research science. And, uh, you know, I did several different summer internships at UCSD and Baylor College of Medicine, where I was looking at these pharmacology drug development projects. And so I got really interested in kind of more the research side, more than the medicine side. And so that's how I ended up ultimately going on to pursue and apply to PhD programs. I ended up I think we'll get to like, you know, choosing schools later, but I ended up choosing NYU and uh, NYU School of Medicine and their pharmacology program. So I live in New York City now, which is really dope. <laughs> um, I love the city. And yeah, I do research on neurodegenerative disease known as Friedrich's ataxia and iron metabolism is a big part of my project as well. So 
think that's a very brief uh, intro. <laughs> of course. Well, we'll get we'll get a little bit more into the the nitty gritty. So in a recent interview that you did with Brooke Michio, I noticed that you were discussing having grown up in a predominantly white neighborhood and in a public education system. How do you think that experience in particular shaped your academic journey? Right. So I think I think it's really important to kind of acknowledge your privilege in, in any situation. And so I think you know, growing up in a wealthier, predominantly white area, like the education systems were just, they were just really nice. Um, We had all the AP classes, we had, you know, a very competitive academic environment, which I think leads to being able to uh, be really competitive when you're looking at the undergrad, I guess, application process. But I also think for me, you know, it was tough sometimes because people would always expect a certain level of intelligence for me. And uh, so, you know, I told the story on Brooke's podcast, but I think it's it's a big, uh, I don't know, a big moment in my life, kind of where the light bulb went off. Like, oh, this, this is going to be tougher because people are always going to... Uh, I guess, question my uh, qualifications to be in certain areas or be in the room. Um, But I, you know, was making my way to an AP class and, you know, the teacher for this class was kind of like, oh, like, are you lost? Like, the home ec class is down the hall. And like, nothing against home ec, like lots of important skills that, you know, you need in life. But, you know, I was there to, you know, get into that AP class. And, you know, I kind of took, took a second. And I was like, well, why, why are they asking me this? And, you know, uh, I think as, you know, a high schooler, you know, you kind of just brush it off. But later when you think about it, you're kind of like, oh, that, you know, that's not, that's not the greatest feeling, I think, to, to have someone question your intelligence or what class you should be without even knowing you. Um, and so... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Have you experienced similar challenges in higher education as well? Um, yeah, I think nothing as, um, I don't know. That was just, it took, it, I feel like it was such a strange occurrence because this person said this to me and they didn't really know who I was. And I feel like in, in, as I moved through college and, and, and into my PhD, it's, it's kind of like this, uh, I guess, implicit bias that people have where they don't, I don't want to say they don't know what they're doing when they, when they say certain things to you, but it's kind of like, it's not about you or like maybe even about, you know, your racial group, maybe it's your gender or, you know, other things where they just kind of maybe question everything that you say or like maybe take it with less value. But I don't know. I don't know if that even made sense. But I feel like the way that, you know, bias happened in that instance is, is a little bit different than what I experience now in, in, in the academic world, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And what drove you to study molecular pharmacology in particular? Like what what kind of steps led to that decision? 
Right. So I was a chemistry major. I don't, wow, I really didn't say that earlier, but I was a chemistry major at UNC. And so I've kind of always been really interested in, I guess, the foundations of uh, biochemistry and just kind of like, I guess, the world, like, you know, atoms and chemicals and all of that stuff. Um, And so... But I really wanted to have something that had a real life application and ideally in medicine. So I think being able to blend chemistry and biology into this kind of biochemical, pharmacological world was what was really interesting for me. Um, and a big part of that is is simply just experience, like doing research projects and having research internships that introduce you into what an actual project in pharmacology or in molecular biology or in chemistry would really look like Um, because for a long time at UNC I was doing um, I was doing a project that was more like chemical synthesis so actually making the physical drug and like making different iterations of that and then testing those whereas later on in my research internships I was doing more trying to figure out the biology of things using chemistry so it's just a little bit different ways of, of thinking about the same problem Um, but I think you only really get to figure out like what you specifically want to do through kind of experience and I think that's one thing that PhD admissions committees actually really look for is that you do have research experience um, just so that you kind of because I feel like it shapes kind of how you approach picking a project or picking an area or even applying to a program so yeah Uh, that's just so interesting because in PhD admissions for the humanities, especially for areas like history or Mm -hmm. like African-American studies as a social science, or it's a combination of social science and humanities, in which case like research experience is incredibly important, but like a very kind of narrowed focus in your research up to that point is also really important. Mm -hmm. But would you say that in STEM, it's really important to get into a variety of different labs and gain experience that way? in order to kind of narrow down a potential topic? Yeah, I, I it's, mm, it's hard because I feel like for, you know, things like engineering, it might not be as similar, but for the biomedical sciences, like I really think like the research experience will more so teach you skills and it will kind of teach you how to frame a question, like a scientific question in the biomedical sciences. And so I don't really think it necessarily matters what that science is, if that makes sense. Like I have people in my program who, uh, you know, even came into the PhD program because it's an open, it's an open program. Like first year you're not, you haven't really picked your track yet. So I have people who came in thinking they were gonna do like immunology and study the immune system or, you know, something in that range and then they completely switched and do like biophysics so it yeah it definitely I think it's more about you know the process of doing the research and having that experience for your own gain but then also so that they know you you kind of know what you're getting into so yeah it's it's a bit different I don't think you need to have like a narrow focus uh too much yeah Excellent. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about structure in a second, because I think that that would be something really interesting to touch on. Yeah, for but sure. But what, what do you enjoy the most about your research? 
Ah, uh, man. I love that every day is a new day in terms of, like, you know, what I'm doing on a daily basis. Like, I think in order for me to not get bored, like, I like that my experiments range. So, like, you know, one day I'm working with cells. The next day, you know, I'm getting, I don't know, patient biopsies that I'm processing. Uh, so it's just, like, I'm doing something new every day. So every day feels kind of exciting. Yeah, I think that's probably my favorite thing. Um, also, like, I don't know if you feel the same way, but it's like, you know, you're kind of doing something that no one else has done that you know of. And, and something about that is like really cool. Like, I don't know, like we just don't have the answers for a lot of the things that I, I'm studying, which can be frustrating for sure. Um, but I also think that's that's a really cool part of the process as well. Yeah, I think being able to kind of pioneer your own research is is quite it's one it's interesting but also like having to act as an advocate for that research mm -hmm. and trying to mm -hmm. like collect resources and find different ways to approach it is also what's really exciting about the process whether it's in stem or whether it's me sitting in an archive like <laughs> yeah, i think yeah. that they're very different but i think that the the kind of curiosity of of doing postgraduate research is is similar i think yeah yeah for sure for sure yeah so I wanted to talk about the structure of your PhD program because I, a lot of my audience, or at least the people that kind of come to the podcast after having watched my YouTube videos mm -hmm. are people that are considering going into postgrad. And yeah. I have, I have people that watch my videos that range from all different subjects. And so I wanted to kind of compare our PhD programs and talk a little bit about NYU's program. And we can talk a little bit about Yale's as well. Yeah, so for NYU and for a lot of biomedical sciences PhD programs, at least the ones that I was looking at, um, were open programs, meaning that they have like 10 or so tracks um, of various different scientific disciplines. And so uh, when you come in, you're kind of just thrown in. They have like open houses from the different departments so you can meet faculty. And so that's kind of... And then you pick three rotations. So they're about three months long and you have like a rotation project that your thesis advisor or graduate students or postdoctoral post students will kind of walk you through and you'll get a sense of the lab. And then at the end of the first year, you'll pick your thesis lab and, and your thesis advisor. And so I guess that's kind of the research side of the first year. And then you obviously have your academic courses, your classes for the first year, which are mostly set, um, and all the students kind of take the same, I don't know, like cell biology and ethics and uh, like how to do research. It has a fancier name than that, but it's basically how to do research, um, statistics, those kinds of courses. Um, and then you kind of mix in different electives. So I took pharmacology, I took immunology, and some other things. And your classes go into your second year, you take less your second year, but then after that, you're done with classes and you just do research full time. And then uh, what else, what else? So our qualifying exam, you really take at, either at the end of your second year or the beginning of your third year. So I'll be taking mine in November. And for us, it is a, the written portion is a F31 grant. Through the, so an F31 grant is uh, what most 
PhD students apply to the NIH for funding for the rest of their PhD. And so we have to write one of those as the written portion of our qualifying exam. And then uh, we have a, like an oral defense of that proposal, I guess. Yeah, also I brought up money, but the first two years are funded by the NYU School of Med Medicine like graduate program. And then uh, your PI or your, your thesis advisor will fund the rest of your PhD, but it's like a fully funded stipend no tuition type situation so yeah okay and then so after your qualifying exams and you're kind of going into thesis work what does that look mm -hmm. like yeah so that is full-time research until you finish and for the pharmacology program is like on average four and a half to five years so that's how long it takes most people to finish and you meet with your committee uh, pretty much every six months, I think. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the structure of that. It's just full-time research until you, until you graduate. So, yeah. Wow. That's very different than my program. <laughs> yeah. I'm really curious to hear about, you know, the humanity structure. Cause I, I'm sure it is very different. So it's a little different depending on which school you go to, because I applied mm -hmm. to five different programs. But the program here at Yale, you have two years of coursework. So you come in, you have some like required classes. So I have a theory and methods class for my history requirement. And then I have a racial formations class for my African-American studies requirement. And right. so it's two years. And if you did a master's like I did before, the second quarter of your second year, or sorry, second semester of your second year, you don't have to take classes because the classes from your master's count towards your degree, in which right. case you can take that time to do the dissertation prospectus workshop as well as prepare for your comprehensive exams. Mm -hmm. And then it's expected that either during your third year or the summer before your third year, you will take your comprehensive exams and then you will write and submit the dissertation prospectus during your third year, in which case in addition to the dissertation prospectus and the comprehensive exams, you also are TAing. So you're teaching classes, you're teaching sections. And then after that, you go on dissertation fellowship. So your fourth year, you're supposed to be teaching and working on your dissertation. And then your fifth year, you're supposed to like just go off and go to the archive <laughs> and basically just live there for a year. And oh, then wow. you have the option to have a six year of funding if you do need it. And then at the end of it, like you're meeting with your committee throughout that time, you've selected who's going to be on that final dissertation committee. And then you defend and then hope to God you get your doctorate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, oh, gosh. I had a comment and I just I just forgot it. Oh yeah, TAing, yes. So I don't have to TA, but that's because and like the School of Medicine NYU is like separate from like downtown campus NYU, at least like in terms of us having to TA. So I know if you do a PhD at the downtown campus, you do have to TA. And a lot of other schools that I was applying to, they TA as well. But that's just something that I guess, I. I don't know. I, I also like the idea of teaching. So I think a lot of people are like, yeah, we're lucky in that sense. But I don't know. I think TAing could be cool. Maybe it might be distracting from your own research. But yeah, 
I think it also depends on your aims, which we'll get to in a second. But I also just want to mention that for my PhD program, it's fully funded. You have five years minimum. Well, you have five years secured funding and mm-hmm. you can apply for a six year of secured funding, which comes from the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Um, and then if you want to go on fellowship elsewhere, like I would like to go do a fellowship at like Monticello or Dumbarton Oaks, which is in DC, then mm-hmm. you apply for a fellowship from them, in which case your funding from Yale goes away for the period that you're covered, but then gotcha. it kind of reinstates once you come back. Uh, so the next question I had was mm-hmm. kind of like, what are your future plans? Do you plan on staying in academia? Oh man, the, the favorite question. Um, so no, yeah, you know, I get, I get asked this question, I'm sure you do as well. Um, but no, I don't plan on staying in academia. Um, I kind of feel like I will end up in industry. Um, but I also have contemplated doing more like life science consulting, um, because I do kind of like the fast paced project based kind of work. So I feel like that would be a good fit. Um, I just don't see myself staying in academia. So yeah. If you were to choose, like, another career... This is just, like, a fun question that I like asking. Uh-huh. uh-huh. If you were to choose a career that, like, had nothing to do with your research, what would you do and why? Oh, man. Um, I feel like I would want to be either an architect or, like, a fashion designer. But, like, my issue is I can't draw. <laughs> so, like, both of those... <laughs> you know, are quite difficult. But if I had that skill, yeah, I'd probably, you know, architect, fashion designer. I think that'd be super cool. Yeah. What's yours? (laughs) Uh, I honestly, I think I would probably go into law. So my Mm. plans, I still plan on doing a law degree along with my PhD. And my plan is, my plan is to go into legal history scholarship. So hopefully be a professor at a law school someday. And Mm -hmm. also, practice as a constitutional lawyer and hopefully help get us out of the potential constitutional mess that we are about to get into. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and yeah. that's that's my passion is the the study of early America, the study of racial uh, racial relations in early America and their implications within the law and implications of that law today. And so I would I would probably go within some kind of subset of law just because mm-hmm. I I really love studying law. Yeah, no, um, that's super cool. Yeah. 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 So if it wasn't necessarily like in the ivory tower of academia trying to shake it up, then it would probably be trying to shake it up in another area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there a reason why you why you do like the PhD first and then do the law degree? Is it so it's really just practical reasons i went to school i like i was a community college student so when i decided i wanted to transfer i thought i was going to go directly to law school but while i was an undergrad i really loved research and i just i couldn't i couldn't put it down Mm -hmm. and i had talked to my professors about it and they're like well just do a jd phd and so last year when i was going to apply for the phd i was like I don't have enough time to study for the LSAT. Like I have way too many other things going on. And so my plan is to just give myself another year for the LSAT. It's it's really just a practical reason why I started with the PhD. Most people start with the law school and then like add the PhD halfway through. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the other thing is that it was really about the advisor for me. I wanted to make sure I was like housed within the history and African-American studies departments at a school and that I was going to have a really strong support network there, more so right. than even at the law school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Did you go to think- NYU specifically to work with anyone in particular? Um, so I applied to a lot of schools. I think I applied to uh, more than 10, which in hindsight is was just too many. But a big way that I kind of, I guess, selected those schools was based on, okay, do they have at least three, four, potentially five, you know, faculty members that I could see myself doing research for? Um, so at the end of the day, I think when it came down to choosing my school, since I had already done that, when I chose kind of where I was going to apply, I could more so go off of, um, you know, like location, stipend, you know, the structure of the program, you know, the advising opportunity outside of your thesis advisor. So just like within the grad school, like whether that was organized or not, um, and those kinds of things. But I mean, ultimately, like research was was the top priority. And I was looking at NYU and Columbia, and I was kind of, that was like my final decision between the two. And it really was, you know, the research opportunity and and the faculty that kind of led me to choose NYU over Columbia. So, yeah. And you ended up in New York. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know. (laughs) Not a bad place to be. It's Um, It's not. And what caused you to start your blog and your YouTube channel? I mean, I really love your videos and I would just, I like knowing people's like origin story of what kind of got them to get started. Yeah. So uh, I feel like when I was in high school was kind of like the big like YouTube boom. Like, I don't know, where a bunch of like the big YouTubers now are like starting to take off. And I always thought like, hmm, like video content is really cool. Like I could definitely, you know, see myself enjoying that. But I also really liked writing. And so when I was in college, actually, my friend and I started a baking blog, which (laughs) I don't know why we were like baking blog, like that is what we're going to do, especially because like we were sophomores, so we were still living in the dorms, like not a lot of kitchen baking equipment happening there. Um, But, you know, like we would make our little recipes and, and write our blog. And then eventually that transferred more to doing the kind of college lifestyle, college advice type blogging. And, you know, I feel like I started the blog back when, you know, there weren't a lot of that kind of niched blogs in terms of like college lifestyle. So, you know, you pinned it to Pinterest and it, it, you know, you got a lot of readership out of it. Um, But, you know, I think beyond that, you know, even social media and being able to connect with people, people saying, you know, I haven't found, you know, a black blogger who's doing STEM or who lives in New York or who went to Chapel Hill at that point um, was really like kind of fun because you got to connect with people who were similar with similar to you. And so I think that's what kind of kept me going beyond the college blogging and more into, you know, post-grad lifestyle and post-grad style content. And then I think like YouTube at some point switched to being more like vlog style. And I think that's kind of why I started pivoting to video content. And when I started my channel, like, I don't know, when I moved to New York, so like two years ago. Uh, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun just vlogging and, and, and you get to keep all those memories too, which I think is, is, is really exciting as well. 
but yeah. That's definitely my favorite part, is being able to look back on all the old videos. Where do you see yourself a year from now? What Uh, kind of content do you want to be making? What kind of research do you want to be doing? I... You know, a year from now, I hope that, you know, kind of my, the first parts of my thesis project are, are going well and maybe even start writing like my first manuscript for, for publication. That, that's like a really ideal scenario. We'll see if it happens or not. Um, but in terms of content, I, you know, I think video is only going to get bigger and I, I'd really like to kind of hone in on, on my editing skills and, and kind of try some new some new editing techniques, I guess, out. Uh, Also, like, you know, TikTok is up in the air right now, I feel like, with all of the, you know, hubble It just got bought out. Yeah. Did you see that article this morning? Yeah, um, which, you know, things things can change all the time. Yeah, yeah, the Oracle-Walmart deal that is, you know, supposedly going to quelch the uh, national security uh, issues, I guess. Um, but no, TikTok is a lot of fun. Like at first I was kind of like, oh, you know, I think I'm, I'm on the cusp of Gen Z and millennials. And, uh, but I think I more so identify as a millennial. So I was kind of like, oh, there's Gen Zers like, you know, on their TikTok doing TikTok things. But I, you know, started watching someone. I was like, this is actually like kind of a fun opportunity to make, you know, really cool, quick videos um and it is a lot of fun and i've been doing that so i don't know yeah <laughs> i i recently just got into it so i'm mm-hmm. right there with you i'm like starting yeah. to try to figure it out yeah. um it's a, it's a fun platform to try to get into it's also i don't know i find it like a little bit like quicker and easier to like put things together because yeah. i can just kind of like snapshots through my day um but TikTok's an interesting platform, especially because I think a lot of people are going to start trying to condense their content into like 60 second videos. Yeah, and like, I don't, I think YouTube's here to stay, but I think that like TikTok is one of those things where it's going to take off in a similar way like Instagram did. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's hard for me too because I really enjoy, like, I enjoy watching and making like long form content like like my blogs are like 40 minutes long like they're just really long and I yeah I like watching them uh as well so it's really interesting to you know take I started doing like day in my life TikToks which people seem to really enjoy but it's like very hard to be like all right this video would usually be like 20 minutes long like how do we condense that into into a minute but um yeah. I don't think YouTube's going anywhere either, but I do think TikTok and Instagram will, it'll kind of follow that trajectory of people starting to, to take TikTok a little bit more seriously, um, especially like in the millennial space, I guess. But mm-hmm. we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Yep. And what is the best piece of advice you ever received? The best piece of advice I've ever received... So, I don't know if this is technically the best piece of advice I received, but I I would say the most universal piece of advice. Someone told me when I was applying, or before I decided to pursue a PhD, they were like, you know, if you're having a hard time figuring out what you want to do or how much school you need to have, think about what your top job 
that you would want to pursue is like what positions are you looking for and then see like what other people who are in that position now like what degrees they have or what qualifications they have and then really what you're gonna want to do is kind of match or exceed those expectations so that you'll be readily prepared for that and I just I never really thought about it that way um in terms of just like pursuing you know I guess advanced degrees because honestly I probably could have you know done similar projects in a master's program but when I went and looked and said okay I want to be in this position and I saw that everyone you know had a PhD I was like oh okay so maybe there's some skills or some knowledge that you get from a PhD that you need to in order to excel in in that uh space I guess so I don't know I think that's been like the most relevant and useful piece of advice at least in my you know PhD mind um but yeah I thought that was just something interesting to think about I think that's a good piece of advice I think it's also something that people don't talk about a lot because they think that grad school automatically means like higher pay cut or like whatever whatever pay grade that they are thinking of pursuing but I think yeah on top of that, you have to you have to look at specifically what kind of skills and qualifications are required for the positions that you're aspiring to. Right, right. And how do you quote lift as you climb, and how do you hope to inspire others? Yeah, so I think you know big obvious thing is is through my YouTube channel and kind of being very public about you know balancing a PhD and kind of moving through that process. But you know I still go back to UNC Chapel Hill and I do panels with you know their current students um, and kind of just give them advice on you know pursuing a PhD or like other routes that they can take depending on what they want to do. And, you know, I've done a couple of events with NYU just in terms of like going out and recruiting. And, you know, I I always say like my email is open and, you know, I, you know, read personal statements or go through resumes and, and that kind of thing. And so I feel like, you know, as I move through this space, you know, people that I knew at UNC or, you know, continue to meet at UNC kind of, you know, if they are interested in, in, in coming to NYU or even doing a PhD in general, like, you know, paying my dues, so to speak, you know, because people uh, who are older than me help me through the same kind of process. And so I think doing that is important. So, yeah. Absolutely. And as we wrap up, how can my listeners find you? Yeah, so I am on all the usuals, <laughs> Instagram at Gabby Whiten. Uh, I post uh, week in my life vlogs that are long vlogs. If you're into that, um, Gabby Whiten on YouTube as well. Uh, where else? My blog is GabbyInTheCity.com. Honestly, I haven't posted to it in a while, but uh, some new posts will be coming hopefully. Um, but that's GabbyInTheCity.com, and then. TikTok Gabby dot Whiten because someone decided they were gonna take Gabby Whiten. I don't know why, but um, yeah. So I think that's I think those are all the things. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I'll have all of these links down in the show notes so you guys can all go check out Gabby. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was really fun getting to hear a little bit more about your work, and thank you so much for being here. And I hope that my listeners are able to follow you and check out your videos because I think that they're awesome.
Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was this was a lot of fun. Learned a lot. Um, yeah. All right. And that's a wrap for today. I hope you all enjoyed this episode with Gabby. Go ahead and go follow her on Instagram and check out her YouTube channel. I really enjoyed getting to speak with her on this episode, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. All right. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you.